Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what I think this time the name of this podcast is, is simply Troy Daduchu. So you might instantly think, oh, you're talking about the 2004 Wolfgang Peterson movie starring Brad Pitt, right? Let Achilles fight for honour, let Agamemnon fight for power, and let the gods decide which man to glorify. Well, yeah, I'll talk about that a bit, but the point here is Troy or the story of the Trojan Wars, is the oldest story we have in the West. The oldest story in existence is called the Epic of Gilgamesh that comes from the ancient Mesopotamian civilization, Babylon, basically modern-day Iraq, and that is about 2400 BC, the first extant copy that we've got. There are bits missing, but we get the idea. So that is, give or take, four and a half thousand years old. By comparison, what we've got here with Troy is there is a story of a war, and we have evidence of this war, and that seems to have happened about 1200 BC, which was written down by Homer round about 800 BC. So while this is old, it's nowhere near as old as the oldest story we have a copy of, but there's nothing else in the whole of Europe or North America that touches this in terms of age, in terms of story, and the basic story of the Trojan War is so ingrained in Western civilization. What happens now? Well, now, uh, Lancelot, uh, Galahad and I uh, wait until nightfall and then leap out of the rabbit, uh, taking the French uh, by surprise. I don't need to give you a summary. It's not a spoiler. In 2018, when the BBC with HBO spent a lot of money on a TV adaptation of it, they called it Troy, Fall of a City. Now, you could say, well, that gives away the ending, doesn't it? But we all know what happens to Troy. And for full information on that one, on the old podcast that I did called Neon, one I'm still very proud of, Dan and I, we worked hard on that one there, did a whole episode on Troy Fall of a City. If you want more information on that one, off you go. I'll be saying some bits of that here, but I'm going in a slightly different direction. Because the thing about Troy is there are literally dozens 
of movies and TV shows about the Trojan Wars from the whole of the 20th century on into the 21st century. Some of the earliest bits of cinema shorts, you know, I'm talking about the silent movies of the very early 1900s. There are bits of the Trojan War done. That 1923, Helena, which is the German for Helen, is literally a German silent version of the Trojan Wars and the story of Helen. It goes in multiple languages. There was a huge flourish of them in the 50s and 60s, particularly from Italy, so it's all in Italian, because they basically erected all these grand sets for various sword and sandal epics, which the cheap B-movies, you've heard of the spaghetti westerns, basically there were the spaghetti sword and sandal movies as well. Endless ones churned out. Some might be called Hercules, loosely based on the legends of Hercules. There might be one based on Troy. And you know, after a few months and once they've done all the filming they needed to, they moved the sets around a little bit, but they kept reusing them again and again, just churning out all these very modestly budgeted sword and sandal epics that had much better scenery than their budgets might first reveal, but then you realize they're just reusing the same resources over and over again. Literally dozens of straight retellings of the Trojan Wars, but then... For here, in Olympian scope and vastness, is the sweeping saga of the mortal struggle between the legions of Imperial Greece and the forces of impregnable Troy. There are all the analogous ones as well, and the ones to do with like an episode of a TV show. And to give you an idea, Peabody and Sherman, an animated movie from five, six years ago. If you don't know who Peabody and Sherman are, they had been around for many years, decades in America. You've got basically this scientist boy and his lovable dog. There was a movie of it, and they went back into time, and they go to the Trojan Wars. Sorry, Mr. Peabody, I've joined the Greek army. Germanus is one of us now. He's a brother. I'm his brother. He's my son. He took an oath. I took an oath. He's seven and a half. All I have to say is Trojan horse, you know exactly what I mean, but that strategy, or sometimes playing off that strategy and how they fail to do it, has been in sci-fi movies and books and, again, sort of like TV shows, or it could be in a comedy or whatever. I had a feeling this fortress would be impenetrable. So I've hired the finest builder in Greece to make us a giant wooden horse. We'll hide inside it. They'll take it in as a gift. And then we spring out and destroy the city. I call it the Trojan Horse. Well, that sounds great, but there's another door right here that's just beads. This story has been repurposed more than any other story in Western civilization. And what inspired me to do this one is right now, yeah, no, you're going to have to go to London for this. But right now, you can go and see The Burnt City, the latest production by Punch Drunk, which I'm going to go into in a little bit more depth here. And you might be thinking, well, that's a bit exclusive. I don't live anywhere near London, etc., etc. Trust me, it's worth me at least telling you about it. And maybe that inspires you to go and see it. That would be great, you know, support the arts and all that kind of stuff. But even so, I've already proven that you've seen The Trojan Wars over and over again, there is a part of your body that's named after the Trojan story, legend. You have an Achilles tendon. And what we all know about the brave Achilles is he was dipped into a cauldron that made him invulnerable, but because his mother had to hold him as a baby, being dipped into this cauldron that made him invulnerable, she had to hold on somewhere. She held onto his heel. And spoiler alert for a story that's a you know, 
give or take 3,000 years old. In the end, he gets hit in the heel by a poison arrow, and that's what finally brings him down. So, yeah, I talk about pop culture on this podcast all the time. You can't get more pop culture than Troy. It's just, it's been in popular culture for more than two and a half thousand years, covering so many different civilizations. Even though we're into the Christian era, the medieval era, they would have known who Achilles was. And this sort of like elite warrior would have been somebody that the the knights, these Christian knights would have looked up to and recognized as a brother in arms, even though he comes from the Bronze Age, from a completely different civilization and culture. So, I feel obliged to talk a little bit more about Wolfgang Peterson's 2004 epic. It was big budget. And why did it get greenlit then? Well, in the year 2000, we had the amazing movie called Gladiator, which there is an episode on Gladiator coming down the line. But that suddenly rekindled these sword and sandal things. There really hadn't been a big sword and sandal epic for maybe 20 years, maybe longer. But suddenly in the year 2000, it's like, oh, it turns out people don't mind people whizzing swords and shields around in gladiatorial combat. All right, well, what else have we got? And of course, the first thing you're going to think of in Hollywood is like, well, everybody's heard of Troy. The reason why various historical moments get replayed over and over again in movies and and also TV shows and books as well is they're out of copyright and yet they're a brand. Everybody's heard of Henry VIII in England at least. And so you've already got a built-in bunch of people who are willing to watch this thing about Henry VIII or one of his wives, even if they're watching it being very angry at it going, well, they got it all wrong. They're still watching it. They're still paying their money for admission, etc. So of course, Troy is an obvious one that we're going to go back to and do. And Wolfgang Peterson, very competent German director. I think you can tell by the name. He tells a wonderful story. Remove your army from my land. I like your land. I think we'll stay. If you're not super aware of all of the nuances of the Trojan epic from the Iliad, written by Homer, more on that in the history bit, which is sort of the second half of this podcast. The key thing is Hector is the great hero of Troy and Achilles is the great hero of Greece and the two of them do battle. And it's an epic moment in legendary storytelling. Again, it's been recreated in art down through the centuries and indeed millennia. And so Wolfgang Peterson really wanted Eric Banner, who played Hector, and Brad Pitt playing Achilles. These were two... They're buff men anyway, but he wanted them to be as big and as physically intimidating as they could possibly get. And so what he would do is he would go and see Brad Pitt, let's say, first. Brad's like, hey, look at my muscles. You know, don't I look ripped? Don't I look like Achilles reborn? And Wolfgang would go, yeah, yeah, that's that's really, really good. But you you do know Eric's bigger, right? And apparently Brad's like, oh, okay, fine, I'll go, I'm going to put on some more muscle mass. And then he'd go to Eric Banner and say exactly the same thing. He's like, hey, look at my big muscles. You, you do know Brad Pitt's bigger, right? And, and so the two of them are about as big as their bodies will let them go in terms of just sheer musculature. And they do look 
every inch the legendary warriors of the Iliad. So 10 out of 10. The movie looks spectacular. For the record, the movie was leaning hard on historical accuracy, so much so that when it came out in 2004, literally there was an exhibition of some of the props in the British Museum in London. So if you like, it's almost getting by association, a stamp of approval. It's like, look, we've, we've done our research. Look at all this Bronze Age stuff. Now, in hindsight, they, they got it very wrong. I mean, I get the idea they're trying to make it look old and, you know, unlike what you would expect in the West. But when they're literally walking around with, they're either alpacas or llamas, I don't know the difference between the two. And the point is, okay, I get that that's something that you wouldn't associate with ancient Greece and therefore, oh, that shows you that it's even more ancient than ancient Greece, but they are indigenous to South America. They just never would have been in the Peloponnesian area around about 1200 BC. That's just a real own goal there. Just sort of something to annoy everybody when, when you're doing your history stuff, okay? It is a beautiful looking movie. There are some great scenes of combat, but they made a decision. Wolfgang Peterson wanted to make it like Gladiator. And whereas Gladiator is playing very fast and loose on history, it is based on history, and therefore they're not going to bring in all the gods. Whereas a pivotal part of the motivations and also literally the deus ex machina of the story is to do with the gods playing with humans. Again, more on that in the history bit in a minute. So they decided to have no gods, okay? This is, we're going to do Troy as history and not as legend. Are the stories about you true? They say your mother is an immortal goddess. Say you can't be killed. I wouldn't be bothering with the shield then, would I? Which means you are missing a lot of important plot points. Oh yeah, and Achilles and his gay lover, um, well that's not gonna play well in, in a multiplex in Alabama, so uh, no, that's not gonna happen. And so the characters were quite massively rewritten. The plot was kind of all over the place. You've got once again, Orlando Bloom, good with a bow. You know, he'd just been off playing Legolas. Now he's playing Paris, who is the one who shoots Achilles in the ankle with the poisoned arrow, by the way. For the record, Paris, some people think, oh, that's where the name of the city in France comes from. No, it's complete coincidence. There was a Parisi local Celtic tribe that give the name to Paris. It was not from the ancient Greek myths. Just a little side note for you there. That's Wolfgang Peterson. Basically for a movie to make its money back. When you hear these box offices, like it made a billion dollars, well, it's like, well, no, the cinemas need to take some of that money back as well. And obviously they don't pay for production costs. So the general mathematics is whatever the movie cost, you need to do two and a half times that in the box office to start seeing a return. Now, Troy absolutely went over that, but only by a little bit. So it was profitable, but it wasn't the monster smash that everybody was hoping for. Also, there's the famous line that Helen had a face that launched a thousand ships. And again, Wolfgang Peterson takes that literally. It's obviously poetic. And so there is this sweeping shot of like a thousand ships on the sea. There's no way even ancient Greece in its Hellenic prime couldn't have had a navy of a thousand, let alone 700 years earlier. This is a very literal, very logical, very unpoetic retelling of this poetic legend. <laughs> there we go. Now, the burnt city by comparison, it's theatre. Now, the thing that every single bit of theatre you've ever seen, which has in common with itself, is that you go in, you sit down, and there's stuff happening on a stage. That's not what the Burnt City is. Now, first of all, they've decided to 
analogize, if you like, Greece and Troy. So the Greeks are a militaristic society, which is true, and they therefore decided to dress up everybody like kind of into war years, so sort of like World War One-ish type stuff. You, you see sort of like telephones on desks and some of the people are wearing trench coats, which can only be described as sort of like either World War One or World War Two. So that's Greece. Troy, by comparison, is sort of art deco, but very neon. It, it's far more almost fantastical. Blade Runner-ish, but I don't want to make you think it's too sort of sci-fi it's not quite that so it's not trying to be historically accurate and that's absolutely fine part two is there's hardly any dialogue the actors are actually dancers it's interpretive dance now you don't know me very well but i'm telling you right now i'm the sort of person that if i'm told that i'm going to go and see interpretive dance i will let out a very long sigh and go, really? Can you really interpretively dance a siege of a city? And the answer is, yeah, you can. Sort of, sort of, because Troy, the story of Troy is so big, it's kind of hard to describe. It's not sequels, prequels, not, not so much prequels, but other stories around it, not written by Homer, centuries later. Fan fiction might be a way of putting it. So there are a number of classical Greek plays that are about the aftershocks of Troy. And it's really concentrating more on those. And the amazing thing about this is it's basically environmental storytelling. It's about you making the story. Almost immediately when you're introduced to these two gigantic warehouses that have been chopped up into lots of different rooms and corridors and things like that, I went with three other people. And we all agreed that we would split up and there's a central bar. Your phone is tucked away. You can't take any photos. But I was wearing a watch and we all knew this. So we were all wearing watches and it's like, OK, after an hour and a half, let's all meet at the bar and see what's going on. We knew we would split up at some point, but we didn't know when that would be. But pretty much as soon as we had an opportunity to either go walk down the corridor or oh, there was an area with lots of sort of draped sheets, it's almost like parachutes had been left in an area like the attack had just happened with these candles not real candles that would have been a burning hazard with the sheets just above it but flickering candles and I looked at that and thought oh that's interesting I, w I wonder where that's leading off to and I went underneath a couple of sheets looked around the other three people were not with me and so pretty much in the first five minutes of getting involved in this massive complex I didn't see the other three until an hour and a half later at the bar. And we started comparing notes and we'd all seen very different things in very different contexts. And it was amazing, truly spectacular. There was one part where there was incredible swelling, epic music. And I could see that people were doing stuff. So in the first half, because I'd already lost everybody else, I decided I'm not going to follow the actors. I'm not going to wander around and see the stories that they're telling. Instead, I'm going to make my own journey, see what I could discover and explore all by myself. And so there was this desk and the music was swelling and I was the only one there. And it's clearly somebody's office, an important military type person's office. And so I thought, right, I'm going to quickly open up the drawers. And indeed, in the drawers, there was actual further information, like information on some of the characters. So this is exactly like a video game when you're creeping around, like being a thief. It could be in a fantasy world or a sci-fi world. It's like you, you get little audio 
audio logs and things like that that tell you more about what's going on. But in this situation, it wasn't audio. But with the music swelling, there's just a part of my brain going, Jem, Jem, you you know, people are out to get you. You're, you're in somebody's office. You must read this before the music ends. Just that little role-playing element just kicked into my head. Really exciting. I don't want to say too much because half the joy is walking around and going, well, I didn't expect to see that, or wow, that's, you did that indoors? Uh, that's remarkable. But I'm telling you right now, back to the interpretive dance, there is a moment where this woman is basically confronted by Agamemnon, who is basically dressed sort of like a World War One general. And she is clearly kind of, I'm going to say sort of put to death, or she is, she's basically tied up for real. She's tied up. She's sort of stripped bare chested. So yes, this is, you have to be 16 or older to go and see this. And then they sort of like lean over her and it looks like you know, they're doing something to her. And obviously what they do is they put some fake blood on her. And so there is this sort of like topless young woman lying there with blood on her. And just, it looks like you've just seen a crime, witnessed a crime. It's, it's awful. It's really powerful and visceral. And then they cover her in a sheet and they carry her into this, actually it's a sort of shop. And they sort of place her with this sort of like funeral shroud over her. And then I just happen to be standing at exactly the right moment where again, sort of like music starts playing and suddenly the the actress or dancer, I don't know, quite know what to call her. She sort of pivots her body. And from where I'm looking at her, she sort of falls out of view. And then she gets up and she sort of walks in what can only be described, sort of, you know, kind of like uh, she's waking up or she's being resurrected and she sort of moves around. Now she's got like a group of people like me just looking at her, but by the way, her top's back on now. And she is, she's sort of slowly recovering and the music's swelling. And then the thing that they hung her from originally, she sort of like, links her foot onto it and she sort of slowly rises and rises until she's sort of like actually hovering off the floor but she's spinning around with her long hair flowing in the wind it it i found it extremely emotional i i you know again mr interpretive dance not me i was nearly brought to tears by this scene it's amazing and the thing is these people do they're, they're called loops i've found out about the behind the scenes stuff and so they normally do three loops a night so you could in theory see the same thing happening three times but in the extreme heat of july and and august of 2022 the actors have said it's so hot and it's really hard to do this stuff so apparently they only do two loops which gives you more opportunity to search around stuff and find things like a i'm not making this up uh, i once i walked into a bedroom that was just full of there was a bed in it and uh, it was covered in stuffed owls which i presume is something to do with artemis and just more and more things i i i accidentally got scared and scared somebody else i was in another room with this huge pile of bent cutlery. It was almost like Yuri Geller had been there, sort of warping spoons and, and there's a huge pile. It's like, is that just a big pile glued together or is that actually separate? And so I was looking at it and I, I sort of like picked up one and I was so absorbed and like, no, no, that's, that's a real pile of bent up cutlery that the woman behind me thought I was an actor. So when I got up quite quickly to move away from it, because I wasn't sure if I was meant to touch it or not, apparently I was, that I scared her and the movement behind me, I didn't know she was there, she scared me. So there we go. So it's it's just, it's one of these things, I would compare it to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Can you tell me definitively what the story is of that? No. 
but it's a hell of an experience. You know, you experience this journey. It gives you feelings and it leaves you to people. Talk. Every single person who's gone to see The Burnt City in South London by Punch Drunk, please, I encourage you hugely to get tickets. There are VIP tickets. That's because it gives you a VIP bar, but it's not like you get a better view because you're walking around. By the way, when you're walking around, you're wearing a mask like an ancient Greek theatrical mask, which means that anybody not wearing a mask is an actor, which is really, to begin with, it's like, oh, it's kind of hot and stuffy in here. I've been wearing masks for two years. I don't want to wear another mask. But it's like, no, this actually adds to it because all us plebs sort of melt into the background and we actually concentrate on the people. It is an amazing artistic experience. If you are looking for really clear narrative or if you're looking for historical accuracy, this isn't for you. But here we are talking about one of the hottest tickets in London in 2022, more than 3,200 years after the events of Troy. And that is amazing to me. On the other side of the continent as well. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. We are sponsored today by Dark Fantastic Mills. What is that? They create terrain and scenery for tabletop role-playing games. Things like the Star Wars one, or the Warhammer one, or the Dungeons and Dragons one. There are loads of them out there. And the great news is because they're 3D printed, they basically come almost already assembled, sometimes completely assembled. Most of them, and I, I know this from personal use, you can easily slot them together, and much of it comes magnetized as well, so easy to put together and easy to break apart as well. Perfect for transportation. You can find them at darkfantasticmills.com or indeed darkfantastic or dark underscore fantastic on Twitter. And what you can do is when you go there and you find your perfect little ruined fortress or whatever it may be, great news is the promo code CONDENSED will get you 10% off whatever you're buying this time round. So help support an independent organization and go on to darkfantasticmills.com today. So I hopefully I've shown you that Troy and pop culture kind of go together like cheese and wine, or burger and fries. Whatever, I mean, it is just the timeless classic, quite frankly. But now, let's have a look at the history. Now, what I wanted to say is, Homer was writing about this. And indeed, Homer is the first person in history to come up with a sequel. We get the Iliad, which is about the Trojan War, and then Odysseus, who's trying to head back after the Trojan War to his wife. His journeys back home are under the Odyssey. So there we go. So those are two things that are absolutely connected. But with the Iliad, the reason why it's called the Iliad is because the Greeks called the place of Troy, Ilios, which apparently is derivation of Wilios, and we actually know what the Trojans called their actual city, which was Wilusa or Wilusha. So it should be called the Wilusiad, not the Iliad, and we should be calling it Wilusa and not Troy. I have no idea how we got from Iliad to Troy, by the way, but anyway. It's a real place. 
near Janakale in modern day Turkey. Now, Turkey is a very modern invention. In fact, it was founded formally in 1922. So it's basically a hundred years old and it was part of the Ottoman Empire before that. And, and actually that area was part of an empire, part of an empire, part of an empire, pretty much as far back as you go. However, if we go back to the time of ancient Troy, 1200 BC, that area was under the rule of the Hittite Empire, which was sort of one of the founding building blocks of the later Persian Empire. To put all this into kind of context, 1200 BC is the archaic ancient area even compared to the ancient Greeks. When we're talking about Homer, so Troy, 1200 BC, Homer is writing 800 BC, the time of the classical ancient Greek civilizations, Athenian democracy, Battle of 300, all that kind of stuff. That's 500 BC. Now you've got Herodotus who's writing in the fifth century BC. So let's call that round about 500 BC as well. It's actually slightly earlier than that. But anyway, Herodotus is considered with his book, Historicus, the first history book. Now, I've already talked about him in other podcasts. So you can basically say that history is about two and a half thousand years old. But the interesting thing is the interest in Troy is so much that it invented the other key area of understanding your past, archaeology. My degree is in archaeology and medieval history. Archaeology, we know which year it started. And the answer was 1871 by a guy called Heinrich Schliemann. So Troy is one of the first things ever written about, which maybe we call it history, maybe we call it legend, but it's also the birthplace of archaeology. And yet, archaeology, 1871, that means it's just gone past its 150th birthday compared to history, which is two and a half thousand years old. That is a massive, massive gap there. And I find that really interesting. Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're interested in, Dr. Tyree's philosophy class is right down the hall. So the thing is, Schliemann, he wanted to start digging in this place. Now, 1871, this area is in the middle of what's then the Ottoman Empire. But he gets, he gets permission by various locals to start digging there. And the thing is, people have been digging up old stuff for a very long time indeed. But what they did was they just dug something out of the ground and went, oh, that's interesting and old. And then I'll just put it on a shelf somewhere. That belongs in a museum. There was no scientific regimentation to it. And that's what Schliemann brought. Now, to be clear, to a modern archaeologist, he made plenty of mistakes, plenty of errors, and he would be kicked off an archaeological site today. But you got to start somewhere. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to try and find the clues of the descriptions of various sites from the Homeric story of the Iliad and find out if this stuff was pure legend or whether it was real. Now, that debate has been going on since Homer wrote it down, by the way. There's the argument in ancient Greece and, and ancient Rome about was this the, the end of a period of history or the start of a period of history? One of the arguments about why it's the end is because the gods are clearly interacting in human affairs. You know, they are they, they could be seen on the fields of battle. That obviously isn't happening in 500 BC. So, you know, they're more theoretical then. Zeus, you must bring an end to this. They attack our temples. Now they dare to desecrate Zeus's image. Esoteric even. So this is the last time the gods were literally fighting side by side with humans. So therefore, it's the end of the legendary period of history or because it's about 
something that's been written down and described that actually happened. It's the beginning of history. And look, you can see it either way and you can see there's a valid argument on either side. But then with Schliemann, he wanted to say, look, we can't just take the text's word for it. I need to find this stuff. And he also knew that if he discovered Troy, he would become one of the most famous men in the 19th century. And he became one of the most famous men in the 19th century. Now, to modern archeologists, the site in modern day Southwest Anatolia is relatively near the, the coastline. Obviously at the time of Troy, it was basically on the coast. This is one of the reasons why it, it sort of fell out of disrepair. There are nine main layers of habitation. If you don't know, and this is where we get into archeology, span I'm gonna cut a long story short. We tend to build on top of other things. So the further, the deeper it is, the older it is, is the general rule, okay? And in this case, there were nine layers of habitation. And it's round about, well, there's sort of like layers 7A and 7B, but it seems to be layer seven that was the Troy we're talking about. Now, Schliemann got to the, basically dug it down as far as he possibly could. And layer one or layer zero at the very early stuff, that's about 3000 BC. So he's overshot the target by more than one and a half thousand years. Level nine, the very last one, was Roman, and that was sort of occupied up until about the first century AD. There were big gaps between some of these eras of habitation, by the way. But he basically found it and he started to work out that, you know, you've got these different layers and they're obviously from different times, which was a big deal. Nobody had done that before. Now, nowadays we're pretty good at it and we can do things like carbon, radiocarbon dating. Now, and I feel obliged because I talk a lot about history. Let's talk a bit about archeology span for a moment. How do we know how old something is? Okay, well, we might have another one of them in a museum that we happen to know the date of. So if they're identical, there must be basically from the same age. That's one way of doing it, literally comparison. Then there's numismatics, which is basically coins. And that's really useful because if a coin says, let's say 1000 AD on it, then we know that that coin can't have been any earlier than 1000 AD. So it sort of starts the clock. Radiocarbon dating, keeping it very simple, basically, Anything that used to be alive has got carbon in it. Carbon is C12 on the atomic scale, but occasionally carbon absorbs too many electrons and it becomes C14, it's radioactive. And so we've all got C14 in us. It's not, you know, like plutonium radioactive, it's mildly radioactive. But the point is this, as soon as you die, you stop absorbing C14. Now this could be a tree, by the way. It's like starting a stopwatch. So all you have to do is see how much C14, what the ratio of C14 in this organic material is. And depending on how much is there, that gives you an idea of how old it is. Could you run that by me one more time? But this time do the big writing version with pictures. Uh, one word a page. Simple as that. It's a very clever machine that does it. I'm not saying humans count it, count the atoms or anything like that. But the thing is, it gives you a ratio of around about 15 years either side. Now that's fine if we're talking about 1200 BC. It gives us an idea, could this have been at the time of Troy, 1200 BC, give or take 15 years either way? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good target. It's no use in something like the 20th century. There's less than 30 years separating World War One and World War Two. So if we were to find a body and that's the only way we could identify the body, carbon-14 dating, we're not going to know which war that, that individual died in, for example. But very useful in ancient historical times. There are other ways to date as well. There's dendrochronology. That's one of my favorites. Basically, some people have counted the tree rings of various 
European types of trees. And literally each ring is almost like a pattern across the whole biome of, of Europe. So in other words, we've got the oak ring tree rings all the way back to about 2500 BC. So all we have to do is compare, it's like a fingerprint, fingerprint of a piece of oak in let's say Troy, with a piece of oak that we've already got on the on the records. And once we match the rings, we know to the year when that tree was actually chopped down. It's amazing. So there are lots of clever different ways that we can actually check these timings. And so we now know, without the use of Schliemann, which time frame these different areas of Troy were. We've got no idea, or he had no idea, I should say, rather than we do today. So that's thanks to modern science, but it's also thanks to Schliemann that we've got this information as well. And so you can see that Troy is one of the most important sites on planet Earth. It started Western literature, and it started a whole new science to help us understanding the past. And yet there isn't a perfect interpretation of the Trojan legend, of the Iliad, in anything, be it movies, TV shows, etc. They're all kind of flawed in one way or the other. But if you want to experience the wonder of Troy, I'm telling you right now, get a ticket to London, get a ticket to the Burnt City, and I would love to hear your thoughts online. Uh, for the record, as always, I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. Please click subscribe. Please give us a review. We've had quite a bump in listener numbers recently. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you're still here. But please give us a review. It helps the algorithm sort of like spread the word about us. I would really appreciate that. But as always, there'll be another podcast coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.